0: We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you indeed have defeated the grave and death. We thank you that you are alive now and forevermore. As we gather to hear from your word, we ask that you'd be with us as we do so. For we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter two, beginning at verse twenty-two. Acts twenty-two verse or Acts two, sorry, verse twenty-two. Either on your tablet, phone, or in a Bible. Um, word of God says this. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he sat at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would see, sorry, that he would uh, place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for at your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. When we come to Acts chapter 2, we often think of the sensational movement of the Spirit of God. And Paul did an outstanding job last week of walking us through the first portion of this text. And so when we arrive here in Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit of God at work. We see Him moving, and the question is, what is He doing? What is God's Spirit at work doing in this portion of Acts? Well, He's enabled the Apostles to speak languages they've never studied. And so they have been able to take the Word of God and declare it to people in language that they've never studied before. They're able to do that. God's Spirit allowed them to do that. But He allowed them to do it for witness. As you walk through the book of Acts, you'll see this. Jesus said to them in Acts 1, the Spirit is going to come. Wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit's going to come so that you can be my witnesses. He grants it to them for witness. And that's what Peter's doing right now. The Spirit of God is enabling Peter to witness. Now note what Peter declares. This happens in verse 22 to 24. First he says, look at the ministry of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, verse 22. A man accredited by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you as you yourselves know. Remember, Peter's speaking to a crowd where some of the people were there. Some of the people in the crowd would have been people that would have been freed from demon possession or demonization, that would have been healed. They were people who saw the ministry of Jesus, or they watched a friend or family member healed or freed from something demonic. Maybe they were part of the group that was there at the feeding of the 4,000 or the feeding of the 5,000. Both are accounted for in Scripture. Two large feedings. And maybe they're like, oh yeah, I was there. Oh yeah, I saw that. And so Peter says, I want you to consider the life and ministry of Jesus. He mentions that in a sentence. And then he goes on, and he says, this man was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. He said, God wasn't surprised by this. God wasn't caught off guard by this. God planned this. And wicked men did it. And they nailed him to the cross. So he starts by talking about the life of Jesus, then he briefly moves to the death of Jesus. We know later on, Peter will expound and talk about the death of Jesus in in his two epistles. And as he does so, we, we learn about what it means that Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross, what it means that he became our substitute. But here he talks about the fact that Jesus died and that wicked men did it. Though it was God's plan, wicked men nailed the Savior, the Messiah, to the cross, that they did it. So he mentions the life of Jesus, then the death of Jesus, then thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus. He says, but God, verse 24, raised him up, freed him from the agony of death. It was impossible for death to hold him down. He says, I want you to know, as I preach to you today, as, as, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, I want you to reflect on the life of Jesus, I want you to reflect on the death of Jesus, And I want you to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus declares that this man was sinless. Sin could not accuse him. You see, the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And so you don't always die directly because of some sinful act you have done, but the punishment for sin is death. We all will die because of our sin. We all will die because of our sin. Our sin is what causes our death, although maybe not always directly, um, but indirectly. And so because I'm a sinner, I will one day die. I will one day die. Jesus never sinned, so sin could never accuse him. Because sin could never accuse him, Satan had no ownership over him, and death couldn't hold him. And so he was vindicated. He was raised to life by the Father. Then he goes on. He quotes from Psalm 16. As he quotes from Psalm 16, verse 27, he says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let the Holy One see decay. And so Peter, remember from a couple of weeks ago, Peter's been reflecting on the Old Testament. It's how they came to the place where they decided to pick a 12th apostle, Matthias. And as he's been reflecting on it, he's reflecting on Messianic language in the Old Testament. And he knows here that this can't be about David, though David writes it. He knows that. He goes on and he says what? David died. His body's buried. His tomb's here. I mean, just like we would commemorate certain people and say, yeah, this is where so-and-so lies. This is where so-and-so is buried. They knew where David was buried. They're like, here's the tomb of David. And if you open it up, his body has decayed. He didn't see life again. David is dead. Though he was a prophet. You find out here that David was also not a king, just a king, but in the prophetic office. And he said God promised him an oath that one day his descendants would be on the throne. He would place one of his descendants, sorry, on the throne. And so where's David's hope? It says it. Seeing what was to come, verse 31, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. And that although he was abandoned, the realm of death, his body would not see decay. When you read Hebrews 11, you find out 10 and 11, Uh, You find out that this is how the Old Testament believers were saved. Some people will come to me and say, how were they saved out of the Old Testament? Just like us, they believed in the Messiah. We believe in the Messiah after his accomplished work has been done. Burial, death, resurrection, ascension. They believed in the Messiah and the promise that he would come. And so David believes Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. And he believed Messiah would sit on his throne. That this Messiah who would come would be one of his descendants and he would sit on his throne. And he says when David was speaking, as inspired by the Spirit, he was speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah. And then verse 32, and God raised this Jesus to life. You see the ascension mentioned here. The ascension is mentioned in the idea, in fact, that not only did Christ come and die and be raised to life again, but he's ascended on high for a variety of reasons. But it talks about his exaltation. It talks about the fact that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. As the exalted one who's ascended, if Jesus stayed here in his resurrected body, he would have only been able to be in one place at one time. But as he's ascended, he is able, because of who he is, God the Son, to be everywhere all at once, omnipresent. And as an ascension, he's able to be with each of us at any time and all of the time. And so here, Peter mentions the Ascension briefly, and he says, we're witnesses. He's already talked about this. I mean, the 120 of them had gathered, and as 120 of them had gathered in Acts 1, they were telling stories about Jesus. And like I said a few weeks ago, Luke tells us a bit of who those people are, the apostles, the women who'd gone to the tomb, Jesus' mother Mary, his family, they're all mentioned in the book of Acts. But I wouldn't be surprised if part of that 120 were people like Lazarus and Mary and Martha. I'm sure they had gathered. I'm sure Nicodemus was there, whom Jesus met at night, who then showed up with Joseph Arimathea to take his body and bury it. I'm sure he was there. I'm sure others were there that he had healed, that he had, he had, that he had been a part of ministering to. I mean, I, I don't know all who was there, but there were a group. It wouldn't surprise me if Zacchaeus was there. And they'd all gathered and they'd seen the risen Lord. And Peter's saying, we're witnesses. We're telling testimony of what we saw during those 40 days. We're witnesses of who Christ is and what he's done and the fact that he's been raised to life again and exalted to the right hand of God. And he says, now, from the Father, the Holy Spirit's being poured out on you. That's one of the present ministries of Jesus. Jesus. That when God grabs a hold of someone's life, Jesus sends his spirit. And the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwells that person. The person who's a believer. If you're a believer today, God's spirit is in you. But then Peter goes on. He said, David, the king, though he be the greatest king of all of Israel, did not ascend to heaven. But he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is from Psalm 110. Now Jesus quotes this in Matthew 22 as well. Jesus uses this too. I mean, what is this? So David is speaking, and he says, The Lord, the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Well, who is David's Lord? This psalm is known to be messianic. We call Jesus, or Jesus is called by the Jews the son of David, because we see through the passages the Messiah will come through the line of David. But no king would ever call his son or descendant Lord. Never. You wouldn't do it. The son would always call the father Lord in terms of kingship, but the father would never call the son Lord. They would never do that in their culture. In Jesus' day, when Jesus was alive, he uses this and he says, who's David speaking about? Who's David talking about when he says the Lord said to my Lord? And Jesus makes the point and says he's talking about me. I'm the Messiah. He's talking about the Messiah. That the Messiah is the Lord. That the Messiah is also the Lord whom the Lord is speaking to David. The Lord is speaking to David about himself. I mean, not of course in that time probably understanding a triune God. And so here... Peter then comments and says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Now when it says made, doesn't mean God created him to be such. God the Son has always existed as part of a triune being. The idea is God has now revealed, or God has shown his designation. Jesus, when he came, did what? He cloaked his deity with humanity. And in choosing to do so, there were certain prerogatives or rights of deity that Jesus set aside, you find this in Philippians 2, for the time he was here. He wasn't all present. When Jesus was here, he was confined to his earthly body. He grew tired. He grew hungry. I mean, God doesn't grow tired or hungry, but Jesus was fully human so that he could be the second Adam and take our sin upon himself on the cross, having lived a sinless life. And so here, Peter's saying, this Jesus, who you all thought was just a human being, who's been raised to life again and we've seen, who's ascended to heaven and is King of kings and Lord of lords, according to the scripture, as he's quoted from two passages of scriptures, he is the Lord, he is the Messiah. That's his designation, and God has declared it. Now, it's interesting here how much Peter uses the Word, the Scripture, in the witness. He quotes extensively from Scripture. Why? Because God's Word is powerful. There are people that think that what the Spirit of God needs to do is some miraculous sign or wonder, and sometimes the Spirit will do that, in order to save people. But Jesus makes it clear that that's not the case. In fact, when he tells the parable of Lazarus, who was a beggar at a man's gate, and the rich man— Eventually, the rich man being in hell, Abraham, or, or Lazarus being in heaven, or what's called Abraham's bosom at the time, probably a, a waiting period before there's actually what we will know as heaven and the new earth. The rich man says, can you just send Lazarus back to warn my brothers? Because if someone comes back to life and warns my brothers, they will believe. This is what Jesus says in the parable. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word. They have the Old Testament. Let them listen to them. No, the rich man says. Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31. He said to him, Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What's he saying? The word of God is so powerful, so supremely powerful, then it's more powerful than even a work of wonder and sign. You see, I know people that get all caught up in wonder and sign. Jesus very clearly there is saying, my word, my living and active word, my word is more powerful than any wonder or sign. That doesn't mean that God doesn't do wonders and signs. It means that we need to understand the priority and importance of the word of God. And that's why Peter twice Quotes it extensively. Verse 37. The brothers heard this. The people heard this. They're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I mean, in this moment, this is what happened. These people are there and they realize they were some of the people that day at the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They were some of the people mocking him, laughing at him, jeering him, because they doubted, they denied that he was the Messiah. And now Peter has just declared that this person whom they helped crucify, this person that they wanted dead, is Lord and Messiah. That he is the Messiah, the promised one. He is the Lord. And they realize, as they're cut to the heart for their own sin, that they don't know how to be in right relationship with God now. I mean, they realize, we killed God We had God crucified. We took the Messiah, the promised one, and we had him execute. And they are cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? Peter, what do we do? How do we ever fix this? How do we ever sort this out? How do we ever come clean with God? How can God ever forgive us now? Peter, what do we do? You ever been there? Has your sin ever been so overwhelming to you that you're like, what do I do? What do I do? As you realize in your sin, I mean, I mean, you thought living with him or her before you were married to them would be the ideal solution. I mean, you knew God didn't want it, but it would be, you need to be able to save money and be able to do this, be able to, and then, and then God's convicted you of your sin. What do you do? I mean, you thought this new device would be helpful, but then you, you found it's so easily accessible to pornography. And What do you do? God's convicting you of it. I mean, you wanted to do these renovations or wanted to do whatever it was, go on this vacation or trip, and it means that bells of mountain, you haven't been able to honor God with your wealth, and then God's convicted you about honoring him with your wealth. What do you do? I mean, they killed God. They stood there, crucify him, crucify him, and they know they did it. And they say to Peter, What do we do? And Peter answers them. Repent. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, baptism here isn't salvific. We know that from the New Testament. What Peter is saying is, you repent, and the sign of your repentance is baptism. You repent, you believe in the name of Jesus, that's your salvation, so that you can be forgiveness of sin, and baptism is the altar call of the New Testament. I mean, I've been in lots of meetings where there's been altar calls where where a gospel message is preached, where someone has declared who Jesus is. They ask people if they want to come to know who Christ is, to come to the front. They call it the altar often. And sometimes a few, sometimes droves of people will come to the front. In, in the New Testament, as we read the book of Acts, the altar call was one thing. It was baptism. You repent and you're baptized. If you've repented, you should be baptized. That's what he's saying. So he calls it to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to something else. It's turning from what you've believed in. It's turning from what you've trusted in. It's turning from what you've hoped in. And it's turning to Jesus, who is the only hope we have, who is life in and of itself, who is the only one to believe in. Repentance is turning from and turning to. That's why you do so in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sin so that God will forgive you. I mean, can you imagine that day, those people hearing that? What do we do? And I'm sure they thought Peter was going to tell them to do something extensive. He says, "Repent." Now it is extensive because it changes your whole life. But I imagine they thought he was going to say, "Well, you know, you got to make this 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 pilgrimage. You got to sell everything you got." No, repent to be in relationship right relationship with God you come to God and you tell God you blew it and you know you blew it and you're turning from the stuff you trusted in and hoped in and believed in and you're turning to him and you will be saved you will receive the gift of the holy spirit god's spirit will be in you that is good news god will always be with you once you repent is that not good news he never leaves you he never forsakes you god is always with you and the promise isn't just for you It's also for your kids. That is good news for parents. That doesn't mean that all of your kids will be saved. But it does mean that this promise isn't just for you. This promise is also for your family. Do you know that God not only saves people like me who were born into Christian homes, whose parents know and love the Lord, my grandfather, deeply devout and godly man, but God saves people out of homes where no one knew him? I mean, that's my wife's story. At 17 years of age, she went to Surgeon A, got invited to be part of the track team. Kelly Ocherich who's sitting here this morning. My wife could tell you this story. Kelly introduced my wife to Jesus. And so we're so thankful for Kelly's work in her life. And my wife was the first person in her family who knows who Jesus is. God gripped her life out of a family that knew not him and saved her. And the promise isn't just for her. The promises for us. I was in Whistler this week at a meeting with 50 pastors from across the country about the state of our church, not James North, but the state of the church in Canada and what God might be calling us to do. It was it was incredible. I, my mind, I was blessed by this meeting um, in Whistler. And and as I was there, I came home and and I was talking to the girls on Friday night. I was gonna do the devotion with the family. And the girls were like, Hey Dad, you know, while you were gone, you know, mom was leading the devotions, and this is what we were doing. Because the promises for you and your children. And God grabbed a hold of Amy before I was married to her, before I even knew her, and saved her. And just like he grabbed a hold of my life out of a Christian family, and teaching the word to my kids is important, it's just as important to her. And it's not just for you, it's for all of you who are far off, All whom God will call, because God loves to save. He delights in saving. He's saving people, not just those that are near, but those who are far off, people from around the globe and around the world. God delights to save. So what happens? Well, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. I don't know what he said to them in those days, but what would you say in this day? Turn from narcissism where self is king, where everything is about you, where you think the universe revolves around you, where you think everything has to be about your plans, your ideas, your money, your thought, what you like, what you don't like, and if you don't get your way, whoo! We live in probably the greatest narcissistic day in all of history. Turn from narcissism. Turn from pleasure. Where you think your life is about you enjoying the most pleasure as possible, anytime, anywhere, any place, without restraint. Turn from success, where you think somehow being the most credentialed student academically, I'm not saying you shouldn't do well at school, but for some people it becomes their full ambition and goal, or success in the workplace where it's only about more money and only about greater levels or degrees of whatever it would be at work. Also nothing wrong with receiving a promotion at work, but for some people it becomes their ambition, materialism, where it's all about what you own and what you have and what you do, Peter kept warning them and warning them and saying, turn from these things. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's what God's Spirit did. He convicted of sin and saved. Is that not great? I mean, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and there's going to be amazing things that God's Spirit will do. There will be wonders and signs and speaking in tongues and healings. But God makes it really clear that the greatest work that His Spirit does is to enable His people to be witnessed so that He can save. And God's Spirit will quicken a heart and save them. That's why in the book of 1 Corinthians, I read this a couple of weeks ago, when the Apostle Paul is talking about bringing the gospel to Corinth. He says, my message of preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but rather with demonstration of the Spirit's power, so your faith may never rest on human wisdom, but will rest on God's power. Will rest on God's power and so this week when I was in Whistler, we were examining and had people zoom in with us, uh, a group in Birmingham, uh, England, and what they had done is in 2009, a group of them began to gather to pray for the city, a group of, 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 of Reformed, Complementarian pastors just began to gather and pray for their city. They began to get to know each other, and they said, what would God like to do in our city? I mean, if you know Birmingham, million people living there. Huge communities in that city in London, England, or near London, England, but in England, um, where where they're like 90% Muslim. And they haven't planted churches in decades. And they said, would God allow us to be used in people's lives to plant churches? And in the last 10 years, God has planted 20 churches in that city. And they've now said, God, would you give us 30 more in the next 10? 50 plants they're praying for in 20 years. And they just said to us, could God do it in Canada? And I heard story after story after story of God doing what only God can do and saving people because only God can save. Only God can save. And so I think of our baptism in a couple of weeks where two young men sitting with us this morning from the Karen congregation came to me and said, Pastor, we're ready to be baptized. And wrote out for me and told me the story of God's work in their life of them being raised in Christian homes, of them walking away from the faith, of them choosing their own path and way, of the Spirit of God gripping their hearts and them being ready to be baptized. They're going to be baptized in this service here. Why? Because they feel that God has used James North and, and our ministry powerfully in their lives along with the ministry of the Karen Congregation. And they want to stand up and declare that God has saved them because that's what the Spirit of God does. He longs and delights and loves to save. Is that not good news? He loves to save. And so God's Spirit is at work to grant us that type of witness to allow us to declare through the Word who God is and what He's done in the person of Jesus Christ and how He's come and to seek and save the lost. But as we wrap up today, maybe you're sitting here and you know the Lord. And as I spoke, you realize that there's an area of your life that you need to repent of. I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's narcissism, materialism. Maybe you've been success-driven and it's been your only priority. Maybe it's been pleasure-seeking and nobody knows, but it's what you've been doing behind the scenes on your tablet or maybe in person. Maybe it's something else. It's gossip, bitterness. And today as a believer, you've been quenching or grieving the Spirit. I just want you to take it a moment and just repent. Just come before God and confess your sin and say, God, God, this has been my sin. I haven't been walking with you. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're not a believer. Maybe you're someone who's been coming in and out and you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ. And today you've heard about his glory and majesty and who he was over over the last number of weeks. And as you've heard, you've realized, I need to repent. I realize that my living my life my way has only led to mess. It's only led to mess in my family. It's only led to mess in my workplace. It's only led to mess in my heart. And there's no way out. I mean, Amy and I and and, uh, the girls went shopping a week ago Friday. And Amy was going to take the girls. And then she had a migraine, so she said she couldn't drive. And they wanted to go to Toronto. So we have three girls and Ethan. And Ethan wasn't going shopping. He came to Young Adults. And uh, and Amy looked at me and said, can you drive? And I was like, oh, Lord. Because shopping is not my thing. So we drove to the mall in Toronto. We got there. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. There's an indigo. And I went into indigo. And I went and bought some books. And as I was in Indigo, and I always go upstairs, I look at different sections. But I was going to the religious section, I was going there. there There's a huge section on self help. And it was just packed, packed with people. Because somehow we're like, oh, this is a mess in my life, and I can get out of it. And there's a mess in my life, and I can get out of it. The only way out of the mess is Jesus Christ. And maybe today you've heard this and you're like, man, I need to repent, or God's Spirit's been working in your life time and time again. You've been quenching Him or grieving Him, but today is the day where He's calling you to be His daughter and son, where He's asking you to repent and to turn from whatever it is you've trusted in, whatever it is you've believed in, whatever it your hope, and turn to Him as your only hope. Today is the day to repent. So in just a couple of moments right now, would you just do that? Whether you're a Christian who just knows there's some stuff in your life that you need to deal with. Or you're a non-believer and today you want to be the day where you could say today is the day of salvation. And I don't have a tank ready today. But we will on November 7th. And if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to baptize you. Would you take a moment just silently on your own, bow your heads and praying? Kevin and Sarah, you and the team can come up. God in heaven we come to you today as believers those of us that know you myself included and God some of us today myself included we just we come to you and said God this is the mass of our life and where we've been grieving or quenching your spirit we've come to you in repentance we thank you that you never turn us away that whenever a child comes to you one of your children you embrace them with loving gracious arms You remind us that there's no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. And you graciously, lovingly grant us forgiveness. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And God, today, there's also some of us here who don't know you. And God, we've come before you today in repentance asking you to forgive us for our sins so that we can be in relationship with you. We've realized that our way has led us to emptiness and difficulty. Our way has led us at times, God, to just a sinful mess. And today we realize that your way is the way, the way we want to follow, the way we want to trust. in. So we're coming before you in repentance, God, today. Would your forgiveness wash over us? Would you let us know that we're now your son or daughter? Would your spirit fill us even in this moment? And would we experience your grace? We thank you for the gift of repentance. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We thank you, God, for the ways that you powerfully move in our lives because you love us and you long for us to be your children. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.